0: Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on a little something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Real bourbon. No apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch. Kentucky straight bourbon
1: whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Capri America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly.
0: Six-year-old June Robles of Tucson, Arizona, tells her father how she was kidnapped, chained in an iron box, and buried alive. The man's house? Or why were you going to his house? Because okay, you were Oh, I was supposed to be there,
1: huh? Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today, as always, is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie?
2: I'm doing well. Good. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm doing okay. It's We always record on the weekend, so it's always the end of the week, so I feel like I'm decompressing as we're revving <laughs> up to record, so I, I always feel a lot of things while we're recording. But <laughs> um, Just everyone, don't forget, we will be at CrimeCon, along with many other true crime podcasters in June in Indianapolis, and... Yes, I, I mean both of us. Allie is flying to the U.S. to go to Indianapolis to meet everyone.
2: I book my flights tomorrow.
1: If you do go, use the coupon code INSIGHTFUL20 for 20% off your ticket. We don't get like a kickback or anything, but we just want to pass that along for you guys to save some money. Ticket prices go up after the first of the year. So if you want to lock in that lower rate, now's the time to do it. And what makes a better Christmas gift than a weekend of murder and mayhem? Well, I mean, we'll talk about murder and mayhem. Hopefully (laughs) none will occur. So tonight we're going to not talk about murder. We're going to talk about a little bit of mayhem, though. We're going to talk about the kidnapping of June Robles in April of 1934. And before anyone says not another missing kid story, this one does have a happy ending, June was recovered safe and relatively sound. But who took her and why is still a huge mystery all these years later, and we're going to dive into that. I want to send a huge thank you to Brian for the show idea. And a note on the pronunciation before anyone starts emailing us. We're going with Robles for her surname, the only contemporary newsreel We Could Find Online pronounces it that way. Now, it could be Robles, and the newscaster had anglicized it, but we don't know, so we're just going to take a guess and go with Robles. The Robles family was well-known in Tucson. Barnabé Robles was June's grandfather, and he immigrated from Mexico to the United States at the age of seven, and the story goes that he and his mother rode on the backs of burros with their meager possessions with them. And from there in Arizona, Barnaby and his wife grew a fortune through real estate and ranching. Barnaby and his wife had four children, with two of those children being twin boys, Fernando and Carlos. At the time of June's abduction, her father, Fernando, Owned Robles Electric Company, and her uncle Carlos was the assistant county attorney for Pima County, Arizona, where Tucson is the county seat. Also in the home was June's mother, Helen, and a little sister. The sister isn't named in the news reports, but according to the 1940 census, her name was Sylvia, and she would have been about three at the time. Also to note, according to the 1930 census, the entire family lived together. So we're talking the grandparents, all four of their grown children, their daughter-in-law, June's mother, a teenage grandson, and the two little girls.
2: So the story starts on April 25. Six-year-old June leaves her school in Tucson at about three o'clock, and she was headed on foot to her aunt's house. A man pulls alongside her in his car and starts calling out for her to come over and get into the car, which she refuses to do. There were two witnesses to this situation, June's cousin Barney, who was six years old, and a woman named Marguerite Smith. Barney and June leave school together, and it was his house that they were headed to. He was eager to get home for playtime. I mean, he's six years old, so he's running ahead of June. He looks over and sees a car that he describes as a little black car, smaller than Dad's, maybe a little Ford. And this car pulls over and calls out to June. In Barney's account, June goes over to the car and gets in. The other witness, Marguerite Smith, she was driving by after picking up her son from the same school. She sees a small beat-up car with a man similar to who Barney saw. And she sees him calling June over to the car, telling her to get in. It's been reported that she notices that June seems a little bit unsure of what's going on. But it looks kind of like a dad trying to get his typically stubborn six-year-old into the car to go home. And thinking it was just that, Marguerite drives straight on. However, she does get a good look at the man who she describes as wearing sunglasses and dirty clothes. She had the idea he was emaciated, as his clothes seemed like they were just hanging on him. And again, like what Barney saw, it is believed the car had been a Ford sedan in poor condition.
1: About two hours later, a boy named Rosalio Estrada walked into the Robles Electric Company with a note for Fernando. The note was a demand for ransom. It demanded $15,000 and had what you would expect. Directions for delivery, a warning not to go to the police. Rosalio said the man paid him 25 cents to deliver the note. By the time Fernando scrawled a quick reply and sent it back with Rosalio, the man was gone. Now, $15,000 in 1934 is the equivalent to about $270,000 today.
2: So a decent amount of money.
1: Yeah, this was a large ransom they were asking for, and the letter was simply signed Z. Rosalio gave a similar description of the man's appearance that Marguerite and Barney had given, but having spoken to him, he was able to identify his accent as an American accent.
2: Fernando intended on heeding the warning about going to the police. It's possible he just wanted to negotiate with the kidnappers quickly and get his daughter back, which I can understand, If it's your child, the kidnappers tell you if you contact the police, they will kill her. In the same situation, I probably would do anything they said to get my child back safely. But despite Fernando's efforts, the police do find out rather quickly. My guess is that this goes back to the whole family living under the same roof. Even if Fernando decided he wasn't going to contact the police, that doesn't mean someone else didn't. We have, what, six other capable adults in the house. June's mum, Fernando's sister, two brothers and his parents. It would take only one of them calling the police to tip them off about June's kidnapping. By the following morning, there was a major investigation underway. The police set up blockades the night of the kidnapping. But by the following morning, neighbours and friends signed up to search every home in Tucson. Yes, you heard right. Ordinary Joe citizens, who volunteered, were told to search the house of other citizens. And if they were denied entry, they were to alert the police to come search themselves. If the homeowner put up a fight and physically resisted the volunteer searcher, no worries. The volunteers were, for the most part, armed, and they were told if a citizen got physical, they were allowed to shoot. In a crazy case, and believe us when we say there are more just bizarre stuff to come, But in a crazy case, this takes the cake for me. So let's just say I'm a single mother or my husband is at work, which is probably likely, that I'm just supposed to let a strange man in my house and go through all my personal things. And if I put up any resistance, then this volunteer has to stand outside my home and watch the door until the police arrive. And that's if I wasn't shot. I know it's different times and all, but really?
1: Yeah, this I can't even imagine if this happened today. I mean, I can't imagine it happened in the 1930s.
2: It just seems, maybe it's just desperation on the police's part. It was still, Tucson was still a small town back in those days. Maybe they hadn't experienced anything like this before, so they were just trying to resolve it as quickly as possible.
1: And it was also a wealthy family and a prominent family, and her uncle was an assistant district attorney, So I think it was a situation where they had some extra pressure to really deliver and really try to investigate and find
2: June. Exactly. So besides the homes of the residents of Tucson, mine shafts were searched and there was a focus on possible hideouts for gangs like caves and in abandoned warehouses. Fernando's twin brother, Carlos, used his connections to hire an aeroplane to fly over the desert in the search for June. Within five days, the police received 100 telephone tips. It doesn't sound like a lot in this day when we all have a telephone that we carry around with us constantly. But in 1934, during the Great Depression, not every home had a telephone or could even afford one. So for the police to get 100 calls, that's an impressive effort.
1: On noon on the day after June disappeared, as the police are overwhelmed with volunteers to help search, but before Carlos commandeered this airplane, a second ransom note appeared. This one was addressed to Barnaby, June's wealthy grandfather, and this read, Mr. Robles, child safe. We are willing to reduce the ransom to $10,000 if you act quickly child will be returned safely as per your instructions obey instructions signed z
2: that's very strange to me because they didn't really give Burnaby a chance to pay the ransom yet they reduce it very quickly
1: the very next day they reduced it uh, these one-way negotiations are odd something else that's kind of odd that people might just want to put in their minds is When Fernando got that first ransom note, instead of running out to try to see the guy, he wrote a note back and handed it to the kid to bring back across the street. And I think that's kind of an odd choice. I agree. There hasn't been much communication back to the kidnappers, just from the kidnappers to the family. But it has been reported that Fernando tried to pay in those early days or at least try to get back in touch with the kidnappers. He didn't have all the money. But the instructions in the first letter said he was to drive along one of three roads on the edge of the city at 9 p.m. If he saw a white string across the road, he was supposed to toss the money out the window and keep driving. He did this for a few nights, but he never saw the string. And I don't know what he thought would happen if he only threw out some of the money or if he was just hoping to leave a note To the kidnappers asking for more time to get the money or what? The reports I read weren't terribly specific and didn't really get into what Fernando's goal was in following these instructions when he didn't have the ransom money. And regardless, he never saw the white string. It's possible the publicity spooked the kidnappers and they just assumed it would be the police showing up. As with any case like this, there were false sightings. The most widely reported one came from a woman named Eva Coleman. She owned a cafe about 75 miles from where June was last seen. She claimed to have seen two armed men carrying a child, and the men attempted to feed the child, but she had refused. With the assumption that they were on their way to Mexico with June, officers and Apache scouts guarded the border. Now, a quick note about the term Apache scouts, I mean, I'll admit My first thought was, well, that's culturally insensitive to phrase it that way. But that's because I have virtually no knowledge of Southwest U.S. history. Apache scouts were part of the United States Army Indian scouts, who were the eyes and ears of the U.S. military in the Southwest, and they also acted as translators between the U.S. and Native populations. They were disbanded in the 1940s, So by Apache scouts, I'm talking about that group, and I'm not just lumping a diverse group of indigenous people together. So, you know, the army kind of did that for us, but it's not a culturally insensitive term, and now I know that. But regardless, this lead didn't go anywhere, and Eva Coleman was later arrested when it was discovered that she had made the whole thing up. Five days after June disappeared on April 30th, Fernando wrote and published a letter to the kidnappers. The family was desperate at this point. It had been five days. His letter said that he had called the police off and because their efforts had just not been successful. He asked the kidnappers to make contact with him again and to include both a piece of June's dress as proof of who they were, And also June's answers to some personal questions to prove that she was still with them and that she was still alive. And the questions he asked were, What do you do with your bunnies in the morning? What do you call corny? What is the name of Bettina's maid? And where is your little box with the key in it? It would be a week before they heard back, but before we get into that, We need to talk about Barnaby's visit to Mexico. So between this plea to the kidnappers and when contact was made again, Barnaby tried to very quietly cross into Mexico. Now, it did not actually happen very quietly, and a lot of people heard about it, and it was rumored that he went over to Sonora to find her, that he had somehow had a lead that she was there. However, what he was really doing was consulting a psychic. Manuel Gamboa was a well-known psychic in the area. And after consulting with the psychic, Barnaby said that he had hoped the insights would lead to June. And then the rumor started that June was actually found in Sonora. And that may just be an instance of the telephone game being played in Tucson. There is some reporting that perhaps a police officer had said that she had been found. But her grandfather making this trip, It wasn't a well-kept secret, and it just really added to the confusion of what was going on.
2: And then on May 7, a third note was delivered. This time, the letter was delivered by being shoved under the Pima County attorney's door at the courthouse. This is a rather bold move, but unfortunately, it didn't lead to any additional sightings of the kidnapper. The letter read, Now if you play dirty, we will play dirty. Your child is okay. Keep the spies away. Why don't you do as told? You have tried to trap us. We know what you have done. If you had listened to us, your child would be with you. Now down to business. Your child will be released 48 hours after money is delivered. We are going to shoot straight. We will keep our word. Now or never, XYZ, obey. It is later reported that the note also included the answers to Fernando's questions to June However, in a contemporary news article, it quotes Fernando as saying that if the answers were there, he didn't see them. It does seem strange to me that he wouldn't have been told if the answers were included in the note.
1: I guess with any case like this, what, what's being reported now, what was being reported then, conflict. On May 9th, a confession came in. An American man already in custody confessed to being involved in the abduction, And he said that June was in Santa Cruz, which is in Sonora, Mexico, and that she was with a Mexican couple and an American man. Prior to his arrest, he had given the couple a letter to deliver with June to a relative of his. And the relative was supposed to return June to the family, specifically the grandfather, in exchange for the ransom.
2: This story is so strange because it involves so many people. And so many moving parts. It just gives them more opportunity to get caught.
1: It's one of those confessions where it's such an elaborate story, how can he be making it up? But it doesn't really make a lot of sense as a story.
2: You almost need a flowchart to keep track of everyone in this confession. There is just so many people.
1: Right. It took me a while to boil it down just to the bare minimum and to really even understand what he was, what he even confessed to. Exactly. He gave the authorities an address as to where to find June. But when they got there, there was a couple there, but the man and the girl were gone if they had ever been there. Uh, The couple, of course, denied involvement and the neighbors were not able to identify June as a girl that they had seen at the house. Some believe it was June and that and her abductor and they had cleared out and moved on by the time the confession was even given. And the relative who was supposed to receive the letter and bring June home was taken into custody, but they released him after they realized he had no idea what was going on. He didn't have any letter on him. He wasn't expecting a letter. He had no knowledge of June's abduction. June, the American man and the letter were gone if they ever were there to begin with. So Fernando publishes another plea in the newspaper on May 11th. This time he informs the kidnappers that he cannot raise the entirety of the ransom and he also cannot pay in the manner the kidnappers requested. So he asks the kidnappers to make further contact so that they could negotiate. And he also issued an open plea to law enforcement, the general public, and also the media to stop doing anything that would interfere with his handling of getting his daughter back. He wanted everyone out of the way and it just being him and the kidnappers dealing with each other.
2: On May 14, a letter was delivered by mail postmarked from Chicago to the governor of Arizona. It described an area in the desert where June could be found and it wasn't in Mexico. It said June was in the desert in Tucson. With all the false leads, I'm not sure why this lead was taken as seriously as it was, but her uncle Carlos and his boss, county attorney Clarence Houston, they went out with the law enforcement officers to search. The searchers weren't particularly expecting to find her alive because in this note, there was a line that said, you will find the body covered with a load of cactus. And again, it was signed XYZ, obey, like the previous letters.
1: While searching, Houston tripped over a weird mound of sand and dirt. Brushing that away and moving some cactus out of the way, like the letter said, he saw what looked like a metal coffin, and he shouted to Carlos, but then he... Decided to peek in the trapdoor to see if June's body was in there. He figured if she was dead, it would be better for him to just call the authorities and not let Carlos see that. But instead, he found June alive. She was crouched down as the cage was only about three and a half feet tall and she couldn't stand up completely. She was chained in there and by the ankle, and Houston told her that he couldn't reach the padlock the leg iron and she just asked him for the key and she could do it herself so he handed her a generic key that he apparently had and she was able to quote quick as a flash unlock the lock
2: I also saw it written in a couple of articles that the key was near the top of the dugout and that would make more sense and that um, yeah and that Houston found, saw it and he handed it down to June but again old story different variations
1: After she unlocked herself, she took a drink of orange juice from what she had down there, and then she let him pull her out. She didn't really recognize him at first, because, I mean, it was her uncle's boss, even though she did know him. But then she saw her uncle Carlos running toward her, and he said later that he had needles all over his legs, Because he ran for her without taking any mind of the cactus in his way, and he didn't even feel all the needles into his legs. He must have been just so overjoyed to see her, and to see her alive. June's cage had a ceramic pot with a hole in the bottom for her to use the bathroom. There were air holes on the top of the cage, but if it had rained hard in those 19 days, it's very likely it would have filled with water. Rotten food was found down there, but also the orange juice that she drank right before being pulled up. So it is a little odd that the kidnappers would have sent down some fresh orange juice, but left her with rotted food. So I don't really know what to make of that. And this cage was metal, so it was very hot in there. June said she spent the entire 19 days in that cage, and then the the kidnappers only came four times with food and drink. But, again, you know, she's six years old. She might not remember how many times they really came. She had to turn her back so she couldn't see them when they came. But she also said she had seen two of them, and they were named Will and Bill, and one of them wore gloves. And she had never seen them before the kidnapping. They were not people who were familiar to her she had numerous bug bites and marks from the leg iron and she also had a heat rash and in some cases she was reported as filthy but houston said in an article that he was actually surprised at how clean she was when she was rescued it's inconsistent reporting and we're we're used to that by now
2: and he did say that when he saw her she seemed overly preoccupied with how she looked she's fixed her dress up and fixed her hair up. Right, she
1: straightened her hair out for him which is, I don't know, kind of cute (laughs) It's, (laughs) it's kind of a little girl thing to do I suppose I wasn't that little girl, I would have been covered in dirt all the time and not cared
2: Something that I also found odd was that she went back to school the following day if she was my daughter I kind of would have kept her home for as long as I could
1: Yeah, she was, um, it it was kind of odd. She will play a bit of her interview later, but she really definitely sounded like she was (laughs) wanting to just get back to school. And I do know they eventually pulled her out of the public school and sent her to a more secure private school.
2: She does seem like a very independent, stubborn little girl. So if she wanted to go back to school, I don't think there would be any stopping her. Right. So, June did give an interview a few days after her rescue, and we'll play the audio in a little bit. But in the audio, and you can also see the footage as well on our Facebook page, website, The Usual Places. But in this interview, and this is so bizarre, but June is sitting on her father's lap, and both her and her father are calmly relaying the details of the kidnapping and the time she was in the cage. It is one of the strangest press conference interview type things that I've ever seen. Not long after this, Brian Foy, who was a filmmaker, came forward and offered Fernando $1,000 a week, which with inflation works out to be about 18000 a week. And this was to appear in theatres around the country doing vaudeville and reenacting her kidnapping. Fernando was keen and a contract was drawn up. But while this was happening, another filmmaker, Sid Grawman, wanted to sign June for personal appearances too. In the end, nothing happened because the family decided to not put June on stage. I'm just shocked that her father even considered this. I mean, yes, it's a lot of money for those times, but really? To have your child, and she is still so little to have her on stage and act out and relive this apparent abduction over and over. I just can't get my head around why they would even consider putting her through that. June disappeared from public view after this. As Charlie said, her parents moved her from the public school she was going to into a more private school where she could be watched constantly, which is understandable I would want to be overly cautious as well. It would have been a traumatic time for them. But then again, this is a father who was happy to have the same child up on stage reliving the kidnapping day after day for weeks. You can tell this bit annoyed me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Only one person was arrested for this crime. Oscar Buster Robson was arrested after his handwriting matched one of the ransom letters This was obviously not enough evidence alone, and actually you'll get to hear us talk a little bit more about handwriting evidence in an upcoming episode, but there was nothing else I could find against him except that his handwriting sort of matched one of the ransom letters. He was eventually released without ever going to trial, and there was also a deathbed confession about a year later that also didn't result in any charges, and... Honestly, there was a deathbed confession, is about all I really know about that. The case was closed with a grand jury that failed to indict anyone in December 1936. Coincidentally, and pretty much tangentially, another high profile kidnapping victim was recovered the same exact day. William Gettle was a millionaire businessman who was kidnapped in California and held for ransom he was found before the ransom was paid and he testified against his kidnappers. But I thought that was just a very odd coincidence that two high profile kidnapping cases were resolved on the same day. So June stayed in the Tucson area and she grew up, she got married, she had kids, led what seems to be a really normal life, and she died in 2014. So let's go ahead and jump into our theories on who and why.
2: The first theory is that she was kidnapped because of her grandfather's business dealings. Burnaby was a rich man who many believed could afford such a high ransom. One of the ransom notes were sent directly to him. And if the confessor is to be believed, the kidnappers intended to bring June to Burnaby to collect the ransom from him. After June was returned, Burnaby clearly felt that he may have been the target or maybe a future target. He greatly decreased his traveling and stopped leaving the ranch after dark and overnight in the event he would be kidnapped next.
1: Another theory is that Uncle Carlos was the target. He was an attorney in the area and prosecuted some high-profile cases. In 1932, the vice president of the Southern Arizona Bank, Gordon Sawyer, was kidnapped at gunpoint from in front of his home around 11 p.m. as he returned home from a mason's meeting. A ransom of $60,000 was demanded for him, and the ransom note was sent directly to the bank. Sawyer was found alive, and his abductor, Cliff Adkins, was arrested, tried, and convicted of the crime, he had been found hiding out in the mines and it's, it's known that he had some idea of the hiding places around Tucson and in the mountains. Cliff was given a life sentence, but he was paroled in less than 10 years. He was in jail at the time June was kidnapped and would have no idea that he was going to get out so early. It's possible one of his accomplices decided to target Carlos's niece both as a way to get money but also to get back at one of the men who put Cliff away for so long pretty much the only thing that would make you kind of lean this way is that someone did send a letter directly to his office and i guess there's a possibility that it could have even been an inside job from within his office at the courthouse because then nobody nobody noticed who left the letter under the door so it could have been someone who would have blended in so there's also the theory that someone at work had it in for him and this was a way to get to him.
2: Our next theory is that the Dillinger gang may be behind the kidnapping and for those who don't know the Dillinger gang were a gang of nine notorious bank robbers in that area during 1933 and 1934 they robbed more than a dozen banks during that short period of time The Dillinger gang had been caught early in 1934 in Tucson, but John Dillinger had definitely left by the time June was taken. At some point in April, he had shaken the FBI trail on him, and it's not sure where he was between mid-April and early July. According to this theory, the Dillinger gang had returned to Tucson and taken June with the motive of getting revenge against the Tucson police because John Dillinger and the police weren't the best of friends, understandably, and he had previously been reported as calling them Hicktown Cops. In my view, it's unlikely that Dillinger would have returned and risked being arrested, or that any of his bank robbing friends stayed behind and decided to change to kidnapping for ransom. However, that being said, Dillinger was killed in Chicago in July of the same year, and no one knows for sure where he was at the time of June's kidnapping. It is possible he or another member of his gang were in Chicago and sent the letter to the Arizona governor telling him where June could be found.
1: I think the weight of this is on the circumstances of the Dillinger gang being in Tucson and then being in Chicago, June going missing from Tucson and the letter coming from Chicago. I really think that's the only thing that ties this ties them to the case
2: but i mean if they wanted to get back at the police there are a lot of things they could have done instead of targeting a small child
1: there is the theory that this kidnapping was a hoax and or was perpetrated by june's father fernando in fact that grand jury in 1936 when they failed to indict anyone, they actually referred to it as an alleged kidnapping. And that was probably the first inkling that there were some doubts on the veracity of the story. The authorities had promised a full accounting to the public of all their evidence and everything that they knew about the case. But after the grand jury proceedings, they sealed up the files and never gave any additional information. Grand jury proceedings are automatically sealed here. However, the authorities could have given their evidence out to the public, and they changed their mind on that after this alleged kidnapping comment came out. Now, this is entirely circumstantial, as are all of our theories. So we'll kind of walk through a little bit of this. The initial ransom letter came to Fernando and said not to go to the police, which he intended to obey. Now, we could choose to interpret this that he just wanted to get his daughter back quickly and safely, but another way to look at it is that he didn't want the police involved because the kidnapping was faked by him. Also, like I had kind of jumped the gun and mentioned before, when Fernando got that first note, instead of running out to see the kidnapper who was standing across the street, he took the time to write a return reply instead. The third ransom note was slipped under the door at the courthouse, and you would think it could only be done by someone who wouldn't stand out being at the courthouse. And who would have questioned a local businessman who was the twin brother of an attorney being at the courthouse? He would have just blended in.
2: Or even Carlos himself.
1: Right. Yes, it could have been Carlos himself. I did look to see if I can find information if Fernando and Carlos were identical or not. I don't ah. think they were. Ah. Carlos had a nickname that referred to his light skin. So if he and Fernando were identical, why would Carlos's skin color be notable to the family? Good but if point. they were identical or they just strongly resembled each other, he could have just walked through kind of pretending to be his brother. And the motive, of course, for this would have been the money. Fernando did not have the 15000 to give to the kidnappers and he had to raise the money and I'm assuming he had to do that by tapping into his wealthy extended family. He could have promised the kidnapper a cut of the money and things got away from him when the police and the media got involved. He tried to call them off when those was pleas to the newspaper but they really weren't successful in getting the police to stand down. And... Like Allie said, after June came back, he kind of tried to cash in on her and on the the infamy of her case. June gave that interview just days after being found, and we're going to play that interview now. Now, we don't normally play clips, but I think you actually need to hear it so that we can talk about it. So the man questioning her is her father. She's kind of sitting on his lap, and her mother and sister are off to the side.
0: So I got in the car and then he took me way out in the country and then he said his house was a little ways over there. Whose house? His house. The man's house? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Why were you going to his house? Because you were there. Oh, I was supposed to be there, huh? Well, what did it take to that? Took me to a gravy bowl. He told me to hide my eyes, so I hide my eyes. You hide your eyes, how? How would you hide your eyes? With both hands? Jim, yeah, when that when that man uh, took you down in that hole, uh, did he have anything inside there for you? Yeah. What did he have inside? Not a food. Food? Uh-huh. What kind of food did he have? Yeah, and jam, bread, and cookies, potato and chips, and crackers. Oh, he yeah, had a lot of good stuff. Did you like it? Yes. Where did uh, this man go to after he left you in the uh, hole? I don't know. Did you see him afterwards? No. In the first night, what did you do there when the man tied you up and he left you? Went to sleep. You went to sleep? Uh-huh. What did a man tell you? He told me he was going to say he to so cry. If you were going to cry, did you cry? No. What kind of bugs were there inside? My ants. Ants? Yeah. Were there lots of ants? Sure, there were a lot of ants. Well, what did you do with the ants? Kill yeah. them. How did you kill them? With my ants. Oh? They were all on your son. Did they bite? Yeah. Gee, that must have hurt you. Were they biting you all night long? Or just no, they went away. Do, don't you think you better just forget school this year and go next year? No, well, then I gotta go Friday. Friday? Yeah. What for? Get my report card. Oh, your report card. So
1: first I have to say his questioning of her is like a one-on-one course on how to lead a child to answer. Exactly. This is how they train police officers now not to question children. I am a very strong believer that trauma is very hard to gauge based on a reaction because people react quite differently. But I'm having a really hard time thinking that sounds anything like a girl who had just a few days been earlier been rescued from 19 days in an underground metal cage in the desert that she couldn't even stand up in. What were your thoughts on that, Allie?
2: Well, just listening to that and thinking back, why did Fernando decide to not put June on stage? In the audio, in the interview, he can control to a certain point what she says, but if she's on stage, he loses all that control. He can't then lead her what to do, what to say, how to act. So that may have been why the contracts for the vaudeville stage show fell through, because he didn't want to be caught out with this faked kidnapping.
1: That's a really good point. And let's go back. Back to when her dad asks her, why did he take you to his house? Do you guys remember her answer? Her answer was, because you were there. And he very quickly says, oh, so I was supposed to be there. Basically saying that what she's really saying is that the man told her I'd be there, but I wasn't actually there. But what June actually said was, because you were there. I I don't know. I could read this either way. She obviously was found in the cage and she had marks on her of being out in the heat. I mean, she had a heat rash on her face, but would she have really survived 19 days? I mean, a heat rash on the face is it doesn't take very long for a child to get a prickly rash. It doesn't take long at all. I mean, a day at the park when it's too hot, they can get a little bit of a heat rash.
2: She's quite a fair child as well. Right. She wasn't dark-skinned.
1: And being in a... Metal cage, even just for several hours or a couple of maybe two or three days in the desert, I can see her getting a heat rash quite easily.
2: And that's one of the reasons the grand jury did say that it was an alleged kidnapping because they didn't believe that June could have been in the desert for that long and survived.
1: She said the kidnappers brought her food three or four times. Maybe she was only under the ground for two or three days. Now, I'm not saying that's not something. That's, I'm just saying that would she have actually survived 19 days in that heat with rotten food around her that she would have been hungry enough to eat, I'm sure, if they only came and brought her food four times. She was clearly in that cage and she had marks on her and she had bruises and she had a mark from the ankle thing, but... For 19 days, I'm not entirely
2: sure. And this is why I don't want to believe that it's a hoax. Because I don't care if she was in there for an hour. What parent would do that to their child for any reason, for any amount of money?
1: can't imagine leaving my child for any amount of money in a metal cage. And there is no guarantee that she would have been found I don't know. And then who sent the letter from Chicago anyway? I mean that's kind of my sticking point here, who somebody was in Chicago and sent that letter.
2: But then you say then you say there's no guarantee she could have been found. We know Carlos was out there. If he was in on it, it could have been that if she wasn't found in X amount of time, then Carlos finds her.
1: Yeah, I have to say with the third note showing up under his boss's door and no one seeing someone suspicious in the courthouse and also what are the odds that two people she knew personally would have been the ones who found her exactly that's really odd i mean she her body's under cactus it's the desert there's cactus and he just happened to trip over the one spot it Almost sounds staged, except that Carlos didn't act like someone who knew where his niece was. I mean, he commandeered a plane to look for her. I think it's a huge... It seems kind of suspicious that they're the ones who found her. I, I mean, I can't ignore that. But he also really played the part of a very, very concerned uncle. And I guess it's always possible that he was let in on the hoax later. Like, he really thought she was kidnapped, and then Fernando said, Look, dude, here's what happened. I need your help getting out of this mess. And this is the solution they had. However, with a metal cage in the desert, it had to have been premeditated by whoever did it. They didn't construct that overnight. So do you have any final thoughts on the case of June Robles? Other than the fact that we probably pronounced every word in this episode incorrectly.
2: Yeah. Every time I say a word and then you say it slightly different, I'm sh- sitting here shaking my head.
1: It's, we'll just blame our accents. Dear audience, <laughs> it's our accents. We can't help it. That's it. All, All right. Done. Well, thank you for tuning in and listening to our episode this week. We are winding down for the year and we have some really exciting episodes planned for next year. I mean, for the rest of this year as well. But next year, I think we're getting really excited about some bigger ones that we're going to use our holiday time to work on. In the meantime, you can talk to us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page that you can like. Just look for Insight Podcast, but we also have a group and we discuss cases, podcasting, we discuss current cases that we're clearly not going to be covering. I update people on cases there. We have some really good discussions, so definitely go join that. Twitter at InsightfulPod. You can talk to me directly. You can talk to Allie on Instagram at InsightPod. We also have an email address, InsightfulPod at com. We have a really great website with articles and some supplemental materials. I'm going to try really hard to get the timeline for this case put up there um, by the time this episode goes up, and that's insightpod.com. We also have a Patreon. I'm trying to get through everything. Okay, we have a Patreon. Um, Just look for our Insight podcast. We put up a bonus mini episode every month as a thank you gift to our Patreon supporters. I know not everyone wants a mug or a sticker or more stuff for their house, but everybody wants a new episode, right? So we put up our episodes up there usually run about 20 to 30 minutes. They've been kind of getting longer. Have you noticed that,
2: Allie? <laughs> I've noticed that. One. With the current one, it's about half an hour.
1: Right. So we they're, they're starting to be less mini. So definitely check that out if you're interested in helping fund our podcast a bit. We really, really, really appreciate it. As always, rate, review, subscribe wherever you listen. That helps other people find us because it boosts us on the charts. And I think that's it. So we will see you guys next week.